Now, speaking of other plans, turning our attention maybe to, to um, well, building plans. In fact, that's a great prop. There's some building plans out in the foyer posted up on the wall, and people are looking at that and like, what is this all about? Well, if you were at the um, church business meeting last Sunday afternoon, then you know something about what that was all about. This is a, this is a, a direction that we might need to go as a church, that we're saying, Lord, is this what you have us to do? That, that there's been a lot of people working on this. This is what it would look like, and now we need to be um, understanding that in the church as a whole and then making a decision in the next couple of months about, uh, well, what do we do with this? Where do we go next? What's the next step that we should take? So uh, there'll be more information about that, but that whole idea of building, it fits in really well with Haggai. And I, I, I will admit, certainly when I was hearing as I was listening in on the, on the team or committee that's been working on what would a replacement of our education building look like, as they've been working through the uh, practicalities of that, I've been thinking about, well, what are some of the spiritual practicalities of that? And so when I chose the book of Haggai for, for four weeks or so and tying that into some other messages that were shared with us concerning discipleship and building up God's temple, to me it seemed like a, a wonderful way to play with an analogy a little bit. Because for the, the church is not about buildings. We talk about building Christ's church. We're not talking about physical structures. We are talking about building into the lives of people. We're talking about building up spiritually. As we said before, that the church is God's temple. The church, the believers in Jesus, these, this is where God's spirit dwells. And so we need to build God's temple, the great commission, make disciples by going out after them, bringing them in, building them up. The great commission is a temple-building commission. We are called to build the temple where God's glory is seen in the face of Jesus Christ in the lives of those who believe in and follow him. And so building up one another to that aim, inviting others into faith in Jesus and walking with him, that is a temple-building commission. And yet there's some para parallels to even as we think, well, churches, which are people, do build buildings which are used in the ministry. And that process, there's some analogies that we can certainly learn from. So that's what we'll be teasing out a little bit and in, as, as we're looking in the book of Haggai. And one of the things that you learn pretty quick when you think, well, if we're going to replace the education building, what would that cost? And it turns out that it'll cost, well, it seems like, about $3 million or more, and, well, that's more than we have. We do have a building fund. That's the good news. Uh, the bad news is the building fund has about one-twelfth, one egg out of the dozen that are, of what's going to be needed for us to complete that education building or the first primary phase of it. Well, gee, that's a lot. So it seems like we have a lot to do. We have a little to do with how are we ever going to do that? What difference can what I can bring into this need, what difference will that actually make? What really can I do? I feel small. I feel little. I feel like the nutmeg in the pie. But what if it's that little that actually makes all the difference. I remember a song from years ago. I was talking to Pastor Evan about it, not at all suggesting that we try to sing it. I don't even know where we would find it. But, but one of the principles out of it was simply this, little is much when the Lord is in it. Little is much when the Lord is in it. And that's what's being worked out here in the experience of these people 
in the book of Haggai. It's all a matter, when you think about this thing that seems too big for you, it's all a matter in how you frame it. Abraham. Abraham's going to go to Mount Moriah. God's told him, go to Mount Moriah and offer a sacrifice to me. Go to Mount Moriah, in fact, and offer your son. So, Abraham says to his son Isaac, I'm going to Mount Moriah to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. Want to come along? Well, now, if you're looking at it from Isaac's perspective and you say, well, here's the wood and there's the fire and there's the knife, but uh, I don't see a lamb anywhere here for the sacrifice. It's not looking really good from your perspective, from the way you're looking at things. But if you're Abraham... You're looking at it from a different perspective. You're framing this situation differently. You're seeing it from God has made this promise. And in the midst of that promise, in keeping that promise, God miraculously gave me this son. Then God is going to do whatever it takes to continue and complete the word that he has said concerning me and the son whom he's given me. So I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know how it's going to happen. But the Lord will provide himself a lamb for the sacrifice. That I know. So Abraham's looking at it not from a perspective of what do we have and what are we bringing. Abraham is framing it from a different perspective. Abraham is framing it from what has God said that he's going to do. And it's, that's the basis on which we move forward. It might be that God says to us, hey, I'm going to build a new building to teach kids and adults and build them up in God's word into the next generation here in the Brush Prairie community. Want to come along? Yeah, we want to come along. We want to join in. We want to be part of whatever it is that God is doing. That is not something that we can do on our own, but God says, this is what I'm doing. I want to come along. Well, that frames it in a completely different way. When you're building something, we do a lot of stick construction here in the Northwest, right? Build out of lumber. And when you're building from lumber, it's very important how you frame things. So you see the word play I'm doing there? It's really important how you frame a building. It's really important how you frame a circ circumstance or situation. Politically today, you've got a certain set of facts and events that transpired. You have two different groups of people politically who are looking at those same circumstances and, uh, and uh, playing out of events. And be, by framing it from a different perspective, they're coming to very different conclusions about it. It all depends on how you frame the thing. So when it comes to spiritually following our Lord and what he sets before us to do, it's terribly important how we frame things, how we look at things. Are we going to look at the thing from God's perspective? Or are we going to look at it from our perspective? Are we going to frame it from what we're able to do and what it is that we bring to the table? With that in mind, with that background, let's, let's just, just, just review chapter 1. God confronts the people that had, had, had returned from Babylon back to Jerusalem for the sole purpose mandated by the king to build the temple to the Lord that there they might offer sacrifices and prayer. 
And they start to build. They start almost immediately to build, and yet as they lay the foundation, discouragement sets in, distractions come, and opposition rises up, and they are hindered. It becomes more difficult, and they stop, and they busy themselves in other things, the things of life and the demands that seem to be, instead of building God's temple. There's always something else to do. There's always something else to devote yourself to, to give yourself to, to be distracted by, instead of what you could be doing in line with what God has called you to do. He called that generation particularly to build that temple. Fifteen years of languishes. languishes. And then through the ministry of Haggai, wonderful things happen. God brings his word from the prophet to the prince and to the priest and to the people, and they heard. They took God seriously. And they rose up together to build. It says God stirred up his people. And they came to the work. Oh, that's a wonderful thing. When God's word comes and God by his spirit stirs his people and they pull together and they roll up their sleeves and they work together and they begin to build. And a month later, how's it going? A month's gone by now, almost a month, and we get to Haggai's second message. And that's where we find ourselves this morning in Haggai chapter 2. When building God's house, it's, it's all in how you frame it. Because in chapter 2, there's the beginnings of that discouragement or disappointment in danger of returning. That's where we'll pick it up. Haggai chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1, we'll read the first nine verses. If you're, if you're um, following along in the church Bible, the one in front of you, you would find us on page 791. Haggai chapter 2. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So we have Haggai, the prophet, speaking to Zerubbabel, the Davidic prince, and to Joshua, the priest, and to all the remnant of the people. And say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Don't be afraid. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all nations so that the treasure of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of of host. Why do I say that this section, this, the second message of Haggai to the people is a matter of how you frame it? Because first of all, God raises the question, God confronts, God draws out, what are you thinking about what's before us? What are you thinking about what we've done, about what, we're, what you're seeing? 
What are you thinking? And then it concludes with, thus declares the Lord of hosts. This is what God says. This is what God says. This is what I think. This is what God says. It's all in how you frame it. Okay? So, how does it look to you? Isn't it surprising that God would ask that? That God would even suggest, does it seem small? God asks that question because he knows what they're thinking. In fact, this is not new. They've been there before. This is where it stopped the first time around, when they first began to build the temple. This is described in Ezra chapter 3, that as they laid the foundations, and some of the people, probably the young ones, they always get excited. They were so excited, and they were rejoicing, and they cranked up the electric guitars, and they were rocking out, and they were so excited because we have started the temple. But others looked at that foundation and they said, oh, it's nothing like it used to be. We remember back in the day. We remember how things used to be. We remember what that temple was like then. And oh, is this all we've got left? Is this all we're going to end up, this little footprint compared to what Solomon had built back in the glory days of Israel? Oh, things will never be the way they used to be. That much is true, but it's all in how you frame it. Look at Ezra chapter 3, where this this, uh, tension is expressed. This is 15 years earlier. Many of the priests and Levites and the head of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Oh, many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish The sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. So Ezra's a good read in the midst of of considering what's going on in Haggai because Ezra gives some of the background. In chapter 3, it gives the background of how things got stopped in the first place and the opposition they ran into in Ezra chapter 4 that hindered the work even further. Does it seem small? Perhaps the voice of the Samaritans around them, the critics in the neighborhood who said, oh, that does nothing there. It isn't going to amount to anything. I don't know why you bother giving your time to that. Have you heard those voices? I don't know why you bother giving your time to this or that or this thing going on at church, you know, working with kids, working with you, working in Awana. You know, people end up, they're going to do what they want to do anyway. You know, they're going to wander off and go their own way and do their own thing. And I don't know why you waste your time on that. It's not going to amount to much of anything. Maybe it's the discouragement from the previous generation here you you, you saw in Ezra chapter 3. Now, don't disregard that earlier generation. There's things that they remember well, things that are valuable, things that are important. And yet, don't be discouraged by looking back instead of looking forward. I can tell you this. God remembers the past, most of it. I say most of it. You know the part he doesn't remember? Your sins and your iniquities he will remember no more. Never bring it up again. God, God knows the past, but, but, but God's working in the, in the future. God's moving this way. So we can be thinking about, focused on, looking back to the past and discouraged, and yet what is God doing today? What is God doing in this generation? And they don't realize how big this little temple they're building is. They don't realize what's going to happen here. They don't realize what's ahead of them. There's a balance, the past and the future. There's a balance of not presuming upon what God will do based on what I want to do and what I think God should do. 
There's a balance between not presuming God will and assuming it can't be. That's the balance. And the balance is found in what does God from his word tell us to be busy about. And he certainly tells us, like he told them, build my house, build my temple. Everything's got to align under that. Everything's got to be part of that temple building commission we talked about, which is making disciples by going out after them, bringing them in, and building them up. Everything we do as a church ought to be around that. Going out after them, bringing them in, seeing them come to faith in Jesus, and building them up in that faith, walking with him so that the likeness of Christ is worked out, is transformed into the lives of his people, gathered together as his church, as his temple. Who am I? What can I do? They started again by faith. They started in direct response to God's word. It says they took the Lord seriously. They feared God. They heard his word and they took it seriously. Well, Haggai chapter 1 is every preacher's encouragement. That God's word does its work and it moves hearts by the spirit and people responded. It was a wonderful moment. But easily the excitement could wind down. They started by faith and yet that start of faith stirred up a resistance again. It stirred up the people around them to say, what do you think you're doing? You're, you're back on that temple thing again? What, 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 who, who said you could do that? Hey, there's a new king now. You know, Cyrus isn't there anymore. There's a new king now. Let's just see what he says about this. And they start the letter writing campaign. They, start, they restart the lobbying efforts. And they send a letter, and you can read it in Ezra chapter 5. They send a letter to the new king of the Medes and the Persians. His name is Darius. And and when they write to Darius, Darius says, hmm, what's this about? These people are doing what? I don't know anything about this. What's going on out there in the land beyond the river? And so he, he says, well, let's have an investigation. Governments like investigations. So let's have an investigation. And they search the archives to see what did Cyrus say and when did he say it. And they found out, well, Cyrus did say, go back to Jerusalem, build a temple. Build it up. Do it this way. And when you do, offer sacrifices and pray for the king and for his sons. And so Darius writes a letter. The king of the world writes a letter, answers the opposition. And this is actually worth seeing. Let's take a look at it. So the opposition, they write, they, they hinder the work in chapter 5. And the, and the reply, you can read the two chapters together. But I'm just going to focus on Ezra chapter 6 and verse 8. Here's part of Darius's reply. Leave them alone. Let the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these leaders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid by these men to these men in full without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute or the taxes of the province from beyond the river. What? He has just re redirected the tax income coming into the government which they are running for King Darius, right? Away from their pet projects or their own corruption into building this temple which they oppose. He says, by golly, you let them build that temple and, and you provide whatever they need to do it. The gold, the silver, 
even whatever is needed, bulls, rams, sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Well, there's a turnaround. It's almost as if, like Proverbs says, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it whichsoever way he will, that God is in charge. God says, how does it look? Does it seem small? What can we do? Well, we can't do much, but God can do everything. In lean times, we don't have much capital. We don't have resources. We have little to lean on except God himself. We are little. But God uses something little to make a big difference. That's the lesson of the nutmeg. Little is much when the Lord is in it. It's all in how you frame it. It's not, it's not about what do I have. It's about who. Always put the who before the what. Always put who, God, and what he has said over who am I and what do I have. We must think both practically and spiritually, certainly. We only have so much time. We only have so, many, so much resources. We do need to ask the question, what will God do through me? But don't ask that, what would God do through me? Seriously, what God would you do through me? Because he fully intends to work through you. I, I, I keep rehearsing it because I was so captivated by that phrase that Jesus says. I find it amazing. Jesus says, greater things than these things that he has done, greater things than these will you do because I go to the Father. Because I go to the Father through the cross, opening the way for the Spirit to dwell within you, even greater than my works, the things that you will do for the Father's kingdom bringing his will to be done on earth as is in heaven. It's amazing. God would use the likes of us. God would use little ones like us. God would say, hey, this is what I'm doing. Want to come along? And we don't know fully what it's going to cost us, but the right answer is, yes, Lord, I'm in. Yes, Lord, I want to be right in the middle, in the midst of what it is that you are doing. You see, you can because God is. I didn't say you can because God will. I said you can because God is. He is building his church. He is doing it. He says all authority is given to me and this is what I'm focusing it on. Make disciples. Go out after them. Bring them into faith in, in Jesus building them up, that they live out that faith in the midst of an antagonistic and oppositional world just like these were, and see what God does in the midst of that world. See how he guards his own and provides for them in unexpected ways in the midst of that world. You can because God is. What does he say? He says, yet, though it looks small to you, yet be strong. All of you work for I am with you. Did you see that from verse 4? Oh, we got to get back to Haggai again. I'm, I'm still stuck in Ezra. Back in Haggai. Yet now, yet for, in verse 4, there's a contrast there. Contrast from what we're thinking to what God says. Be strong. Be strong, Joshua. You know what that sounds? I've, I've heard that before. Be strong, Joshua. Where have I heard that before? I heard that just before the walls of Jericho came down, didn't I? 
Be strong, Jericho, Jer- Joshua at Jericho. Why? Because I am with you. And he says the same thing here. I don't think it's any surprise that it's a man named Joshua that leads the people of Israel into their inheritance. I don't think it's any surprise that it's a priest named Joshua here that leads the people in their building of God's temple because it's a man named Joshua, Yeshua, whom God uses to bring us back into right relationship with him. Jesus is the New Testament name Joshua. And we're meant to be thinking along those terms. We're, we're, we're meant to think of Joshua back then. We're meant to think of the Joshua who would yet come because God says more about him as we go a little further. But he says, the point is, I'm with you. All the people work. Roll up your sleeves because I am with you. On what basis? According to the covenant that I made when you came out of Egypt. According to that redemption covenant that I made with you when I pulled you out together and my spirit remains with you. God made a covenant with his people. And that covenant even included the fact that they were going to go their own way and their own way was going to eventually take them all the way to Babylon. And yet even from there, God would bring them back and God would restore them. God would restore them not only to people living in the land, but God would restore them to a people who are gathered around his presence, his temple, that the world might through them know their one true God of heaven. And it's the king of the world who's saying, would you build that temple so those people can pray for me? What a wonderful thing when somebody out there in the world asks you to pray for them. Never let that go by without diligently praying and without continuing to follow up with them. I've been praying for you. How is it going? Fear not, he says, You can because God is going to do. God is going to build here. He's even going to provide what is needed. It was a fun story out of Dallas Seminary. He says here, as he goes on, he says, the silver is mine, the gold is mine. It was a fun story out of the founding of Dallas Seminary. And um, I hear the story because that's that's the school that I went to. And... and, uh, like a lot of schools, like a lot of churches, in the initial founding, there's, there's these moments of when we're starting, when we're building up, when, when things are coming together, this is way beyond us. This is more than we could do. This is more than we can imagine how we would pull it off. And there they are in a prayer meeting together in the, in the seminary president's office. The seminary president, that sounds like a very important place, but this is, this is like a little back room somewhere in those days because the seminary was next to nothing. They were just starting, and how could we continue? We don't have the resources that this is going to take. And so the board members are gathered around there, various businessmen and so forth, and they've contributed the resources that they have, and it is not enough And so the founding president of the seminary, Lewis Sperry Chafer, is there. Dr. Harry Ironside wrote a lot of devotional commentators. He's there. And Dr. Ironside prays this way in the midst of their praying about what are we going to do, God. He says, Lord, you own the cattle on a thousand hillsides. Lord, would you sell some of those cattle and meet this need? 
Just after that, there's a knock on the door. The secretary dares to interrupt this obviously very important prayer meeting that's going on because they're praying about the future of the school and how are they going to possibly provide for it. And in the midst of that urgent prayer, she dares to knock on the door because she said, Dr. Schaefer, there's somebody out here that you really need to see, you really need to meet. Okay, well, we've interrupted the meeting, so Dr. Schaefer comes out. And this old boy's a rancher from somewhere out west of Dallas. He says, sir, I, I've known of your little school starting up here. I think it's a wonderful thing. But, and I don't rightly know why, but the Lord told me to sell this particular herd of cattle, one of my herds. He told me, sell that herd of cattle and bring that money to Dr. Chafer at Dallas Seminary. He'll know what to do with it. It's funny how we're so surprised when things like that happen, and you know they were stunned. They were like, what? God did what? What's happening here in an event like that, and it played out just as I described, that, that God put it on their hearts to ask, but already before God put it on their hearts to ask in that way, he'd already started the solution on its way, and it was coming, and there it is, and look what God has done. He stirs our heart to ask for that which he is already above and beyond what we would ask or imagine. He's already working to bring that about. It's all in how you frame it. How can we ever pull this off? We can't. How can we? We can't, we can't pull off building a new education building. How could we ever pull off the real spiritual, eternal work of building up God's church and temple into the likeness of Christ, life upon life by His Spirit? We cannot accept it's by His Spirit. There it is. That's how it happens. That's how God's going to do it. We, we can, because God is, we are building towards God's future even in the present age. We're wandering about in this, in this um, um, now, not yet kind of era where God's kingdom is already beginning to grow and yet it is not yet. We are not yet in his kingdom. It, things are not yet as they will be. We do not live in the experience of thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. We still pray for that. And yet, we live in that coming reality. We lean toward it. And we need to lean toward it in the lives of one another and bring one another along with us as we do. We need to build, not discouraged by how things used to be in the past, but we need to build for what will be in God's future. What does he say? He says, roll up your sleeves, work don't be afraid. What are they afraid of? The hard work we do, the sacrifices we make, the time we give up, the resources we expend. It's all going to end up amounting to nothing. It's all in how you frame it. Can I remind you that you've got about 70 years, maybe 80 years, maybe 90 plus, and sooner or later it's all going to amount to nothing unless everything that God has said about the future is true. And then, oh, so much difference can be made in such a short amount of time. Not merely because of what you do or what God uses you to do, but because of how you grow in trust and faith in God whom you don't yet see. 
This is God's workshop in eternity. This is where God is building his temple. And he's building that temple. He's, he's fine polishing the edges as he stretches us in trusting him instead of leaning on ourselves. As he stretches us in serving others instead of serving ourselves and doing what I want to do for me and my comfort and my relaxation, but giving my life away for the sake of somebody else who I also get the joy of introducing into God's eternal plans and purposes. We build together for God's future. He says, once more will I shake, verse 7, all nations. No, let me back up. Verse 6, don't be afraid. What you do today will matter into the future, longer than you realize, more than you think. For thus says the Lord, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and dry land. You see, when God called Israel out of Egypt in that covenant of redemption that he made with them, when he called them out of Egypt, he gathered them to Sinai and the whole mountain shook. You remember that, Exodus 19, the mountain shook and they were afraid. God is here. It's described later in Hebrews chapter 12. Same thing, the mountain shook. God said, that's, that mountain shaking, that's nothing. He says, I am going to shake once more in a little while. Soon, I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. You know, it's interesting. You know where the Great Commission comes from. You know where that discipling commission comes from. Matthew chapter 28, right? The end of chapter 28. That's what Jesus leaves us with. But do you remember how Matthew chapter 28 starts? Matthew 28 starts with the earth shaking. There is a great earthquake. And the stone is rolled away so that everybody can see that Jesus is not there. He is risen. And that has changed everything. That's the day that we live in today. We live in a earth and heaven shaking day. And so in the first century, what did they do? They went here, there. They told people around them. They told people who were farther away. They told them that Jesus is risen and salvation is in him. God has made a way for us to be rightly related to him, to be returned into relationship with God who made us, regardless of our sin, that our sin has been put away because Jesus, his son, died for us and rose again. And they turned the world upside down. We live in earth-shaking, heaven-shaking days. That's what God is doing. And he says, hey, I'm going to shake up the earth. You want to come along? Say, Yeah. I want to see that. I want to be part of that. God, what would you have me to do? Where would you use me in the midst of this? He says, I'm going to shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord. Oh, that could be easily misunderstood. That could be said, God's going to shake things up and God shook things up and God moved the king and the king said, hey, send the taxes to the temple so the temple can be built up and be glorious and it's all going to be good and it kind of ends there. Well, maybe Herod's going to come on later and Herod's going to take resources from Rome and he's going to build that temple even bigger and even greater so that the, the glory of this temple will be greater than the former one. The glory of this little temple that you build, God says, I'm going to make it greater. I'm going to make that glory even greater than Solomon's temple, which came before. And Solomon's temple was much bigger than this little old house. Is that because Herod's going to make it bigger? No, no. Herod, Jesus wasn't so excited about Herod's temple. Jesus said, ah, this temple, ah, destroy it in three days, I'll rebuild it. 
He's talking about a different temple, isn't he? Jesus says, Herod's temple, yeah, the disciples are really excited about that. He says, you know, there's going to come a day, and it's going to come soon, that not one stone is going to be left on, on top of another. And you can go to Jerusalem today, you can see those stones tumbled down. Jesus wasn't terribly excited about Herod's temple. It didn't impress him so much. But Herod's temple was a remodeling, an expansion. It was a making grander on the outside that little temple that Haggai and Zerubbabel and Joshua and all the people together built. It was that second temple. And how is it that God made the glory of that temple even greater than Solomon? Solomon finished his temple and the Shekinah glory of God came down. Visible presence in its midst. Wow, how do you top that? The last week of his life, Jesus Christ comes over the Mount of Olives, down the Kidron Valley, in the Eastern Gate, and to his Father's house. And there stood the glory of the living God, transformed, translated into our humanity. God became a man and dwelt in our mix, and the glory of God himself in human form comes to that temple. And there had never been glory like that. The full presence and likeness of God right in their midst. The temple couldn't contain it. Their religion didn't have room for it. Jesus leaves the temple, but he'll return to those same mountains, the same mountain of Abraham, and there the glory of God in human form will lay down his life so that all who believe in him will have eternal life in Jesus' name. Jesus is the express image of God's glory. And when he shows up, they don't realize what they're building this for. They don't realize that they are building a place to, whom, to which the glory of God himself will come and do God's greatest work for eternity right there on that hillside. Wow. And what is it that God is doing still in his temple today? The church is the temple of God. And you and I, and you and I together, we are being transformed from glory to glory into the likeness and image of Christ by his spirit. That's God's temple building work. That's a discipling work. That's a building up. That's a building into the lives of one another, following Jesus and showing more and more his likeness, his glory in the midst of this world, which is exactly what a temple is supposed to do. It's supposed to show the glory of God in the midst of the world so that the nations might know and God will draw them to himself. And so here in this temple, if we, if we give ourselves to building it, God will show himself here. He says, the silver is mine. The gold is mine, the latter glory greater than the former, and in that place I will make peace. That's what Jesus did. They weren't just building a building. They weren't building a small house. They were building a place of which God would show himself and from which God himself would make peace for us, peace with God. Peace across humanity that the world desperately craves for, hungers for. 
the peace of God in the midst of our lives as we learn more to trust and lean on him instead of whatever it is that we hold in our hands and can do for ourselves. In that place, I will make peace. You know why you you can confidently give yourself to the building that God has set before us, the building of his house, building for God's future because this is what God says he is doing. And he will do it. Our Lord is coming. He will, in, soon, in a little while, he will finally, ultimately shake the heavens and the earth and a completely new order will be established which will be his kingdom reign on earth as it is in heaven. And you and I will be in the midst of it. And today, when you give yourself away into the life of another, that they might know Jesus, that they might grow in their faith, when you carve out time in your life for others, that they might be built up and strengthened in Jesus, it makes a difference in God's temple for all of eternity in ways that nothing else does. Let's pray. Father, we want to do what you're doing. Lord, what you're doing is building. That might, that might also take a building. But certainly, Father, that involves your body. Certainly that involves the body of Christ. That involves the building into the lives of one another. That involves people who are not yet here, that are near to us, that you would have us to go to. And to bring in. And then to build up. Lord, it involves the building, the finishing, the polishing of your temple right here in our midst. It involves building into the lives of one another the time taken to be together. Father, would you, would you change our priorities? Would you pull us back from the distractions? Would you stir in our hearts like you did there? Father, would you confront the things that we're thinking? Would you confront the questions in our mind also? so that we might see it from your perspective, that we might want to join you in what you are doing rather than what so easily distracts us or things that so easily discourage us. Father, we would pray that even in this offering now, Lord, that this would not be something that we're supposed to do, something that we have an obligation for in terms of being a church together and supporting the same work together. But Father, would you... Give us a different view of that. Lord, give us the joy and the privilege of building your temple, your body, of adding to it, of strengthening it, extending it, beautifying it. Help us, Lord, to build together in very hands-on ways in the lives of one another and in the lives of others so that Jesus is glorified, that Jesus is seen in us, so that in him you would be glorified. And for that, Father, we will give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.